0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Oscar Edelman, for the introduction to our guest today, Sita chantramon founding partner of Siam Capital. SIAM's in search of innovation that betters people and the planet. We discuss how Sita got into investing, what it was like raising a fund for the first time, what investing in sustainability actually means, and her guidelines when underwriting. Without further ado, here's Sita. Ita, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, Mike. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. I'm so excited. Really excited to have you on the show. Thanks again for taking the time. Tell me about a little about your journey. What got attracted you to venture capital and what got you interested in investing?
1: Sure. So I grew up in Bangkok and basically, you probably know this by now, but I I picked up my American accent from watching too much television as a child. I won't go into too much detail about what some of the shows were, but honestly, as long as I can remember, I was just super fascinated with what I felt or believed were like these forces that were responsible for this very visual divide between the two sides of Bangkok, which is my hometown. And initially, I I thought it was politics, which, you know, I think, understandably so. And anyone who follows the news cycle is probably empathetic to that thought. But you know, I, I came to the US when I was 17 to study that totally wide eyed and naive in many ways. And one thing led to another, I got interested in finance and ended up interning at Goldman throughout college and did a stint there a few years afterwards, sort of the usual post-college gig. And then on the trading floor, I started to learn about technology or I guess to be quite blunt, like the the rapid influx of it. We saw a lot of trading volume essentially get replaced by electronic trading volume Um, and just the change that technology brings and how quickly that is. So I love, to an unhealthy degree, and Mike, you know this, food and restaurants. I jumped at this chance of moving to London to help launch Uber Eats in the UK. And, and slowly along the way, I started to realize that the biggest force of change, or at least what I thought was, and, and still do believe, and I know this might sound a little bit controversial, especially in this environment, but the biggest force of change is, is capital. And like that was the common thread between finance, technology, the world of venture, whatever it might have been. And specifically, I was very intrigued by this combination of innovation and capital. It's been a long-ish journey. And I think when you start off, you're not really sure where the destination is. I don't think there could be more exciting of a time to be focused on this space than than right now.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with you and that's really really fascinating. Thanks for giving us the highlight reel and really what attracted you, you know, to venture capital going from, you know, the training desk all the way down to um, to VC and as well as, you know, what what kind of led to working at at Uber Eats as well, which I also love food as you know.
1: Yeah, we could probably dedicate another hour just talking about our passion for food. So.
0: Oh, exactly, exactly. Maybe I should introduce like a, a second podcast all about food.
1: Why did you decide
0: to raise your own fund and what was it like raising your own fund for the first time?
1: It's funny because a lot of folks have asked that and I would honestly be be lying or, or at least misleading to say that my thought process at the time was that explicit or directional, frankly. It was honestly a combination of a few different things. So one, I saw what I believed was an opportunity in the market in, in multiple different facets and I'm happy to go To go deeper in that. And two, I felt like the venture landscape in and of itself needed to be changed, or at least someone needed to try, um, even if at first on a much smaller scale. And then, lastly, and arguably probably the most important factor, is honestly, I was just very, very lucky. And I had some incredible supporters who really gave me the confidence to take the leap, and others who gave me the platform to do so. Honestly, wouldn't be here without those early believers. It was more serendipitous rather than a "Hey, I'm going to set out a five-year plan," if you will.
0: So, what was it like raising a fund for the first time?
1: The fundraising process was actually pretty unusual in many ways. It was a reverse fundraising process. So, at the time, I was I was working at Future Positive with Biz um, Biz Stone, who's been an incredible mentor of mine. And a very senior ex-operator and investor essentially pulled me aside. Funnily enough, I actually think we were sitting at one of our favorite restaurants in New York, and he asked whether I had considered launching a fund on my own. And one thing led to another, and I really mean it, it was probably in the span of a few weeks. A small number or handful of LPs approached me and asked if we would be interested if they were to anchor me to launch a fund to focus on sustainability as a solo GP and I'm sure you remember, Mike, like, you know, last spring and into the summer, there was so much chatter around the rise of the solo GP model and its effectiveness in this new capital landscape. I guess I should also backtrack and and share that after Uber, I went back to graduate school to study sustainable investing at Columbia. So it was while I was getting my master's degree in sustainable technologies that I met Biz and Fred and the Future Positive team and well, I guess maybe team isn't the right word. There was only three of us and they had asked if I wanted to help them build you know, this firm. And all that to say is that it wasn't totally out of the blue. Sustainability is an area I had been super involved for a long period of time with prior and throughout my time at my former fund. Um, it was definitely an unusual process, but challenging in different ways.
0: I can only imagine, honestly, what it was like to you know, raise a fund for the first time as a single GP. Was it also hard raising a fund as a single GP as a woman?
1: I think the reality is, it's never easy to raise capital as a solo GP, as an emerging manager, or even as some seasoned funds, as we're seeing in this environment right now. So the short answer is, is of course, yes. And I think, as a woman, there are slightly nuanced challenges We're all in a pattern recognition business and happy to go into more detail on that later. There are just fewer female investors to point to. And I don't think that's a particularly controversial statement. It's one that I think the industry has been trying to reckon with for a while. But, you know, with fewer female investors to point to, let alone female solo GPs, you know, by data point, it, it just presents more question marks. And there are definitely other nuanced challenges as well. I think that. It's no secret that the landscape of venture has been trying to combat its gender bias for quite some time on both sides of the capital table. And I think that while we're making progress, it's safe to say that we still have quite a bit of ways to go.
0: I know totally. And obviously we need, you know, way more women investors. We we need way more people of color investors. We've talked about this a ton on the show about how then it trickles down and then you're actually investing in a lot more, you know, companies that are led by people who come from a lot more diverse backgrounds, right?
1: I remember um, we were chatting about this or we have at least casually in the past when you were you were pretty blunt and explicit and you were like, What do you think f- think is missing from the market of venture capital? I don't think I or any one single person can answer that. <laughs> I think at the time when we were we were chatting about it, the, the obvious answer was it was definitely not capital. And I think that if anything, now we're also seeing the market reckon with that. I mentioned pattern recognition earlier. And in, I think in many ways uh, that is responsible in, in good and well, in, in this case, challenging ways. But I, I believe pattern recognition is is part of what is missing and needs to change, or it's p- part of what is responsible for what is missing and needs to change. You know, the, the business of ventures is, is essentially two tasks. The process of sourcing and, and selection. If we go through pattern recognition in how we source, aka, like, you know, I worked as an engineer at Google for X number of years and largely get deal flow from that channel. We implicitly are limiting the breadth um, of founders and deals and companies that we see. And the other side of the coin around selection is, 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 is true as well. I mean, if we adopt the same perspective of what has worked in the past, will work again because oftentimes that's all we know, right? It's, it's called subconscious for a reason. But we essentially have this tunnel vision into that same profile of founder or archetype of business and we miss out on like, well, a lot. Funny example around this as well is that one of the first investments we made out of the fund was into a company called uh, Helena. They uh, leverage a unique type of technology called um, yeast fermentation. It's actually pretty prevalent in, in food tech, but they wanted to leverage that to find a way to replicate the nutritional value of breast milk in infant formula. And I, I see you nodding and it's funny now because obviously everyone who has been in touch or has, you know, even skimmed through the news over the past couple of months has recognized how big Infant Formula has been dominating the headlines. And I remember I had, I had been obsessed with this space for a while because the, the formula space is essentially dominated by three players. And there's been little to no innovation over the last over 10 years. And I remember when I had been socializing this this market opportunity around Infant Formula, this is sort of pre-full fun construction. It was met with a lot of question marks and mostly not to be so blunt, but a lot of the questions were from folks who didn't have the perspective. And and I'll disclaim, I I don't have kids myself, but of course I have many peers who are moms. I have also, you know, followed the space, but a lot of people question like, Hey, is infant formula an issue in the U S is it really a monopoly? What do you mean? There's been no innovation. Is the market even big? Like, why don't people just breastfeed? Anyways, my my point in bringing this up is like obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but that's why it's important to have different perspective around the table, and it's not just because it's the right thing to do, but because you miss out on some of these decade defining opportunities, right? Like, do, wouldn't you want to back a company that's transforming nutrition for you know arguably the most vulnerable pocket of our population? So. Yes. And and I I think there's many ways to tackle that question, but I think sort of all roads lead to one path and that we just we need more people who who want to at least challenge the automatic pattern recognition mold that we've been sleepwalking into.
0: I'm so happy you brought up that example. It's something that, you know, we've we've dealt with since there is, you know, a formula shortage. We were very, very lucky. We weren't really as um, affected by that personally, but um, I can only imagine the people that actually were.
1: That's right, because you're a new dad.
0: <laughs> I am a new dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a nine month old. I think you brought up like a really interesting point in terms of pattern recognition and how I invest. And I want to also talk a little bit about you know on the enterprise side too. I know the show is not enterprise specific; it's consumer specific, and I I'm obviously. Way, way more fascinating than consumer than enterprise. But what is interesting is kind of this thing where I'd imagine you invest in an enterprise company, right? You're looking at what the customer's problem points are and what the customer needs are. And then, of course, you're evaluating if the company is actually serving like that, that kind of problem the customer needs. In consumer, and it's interesting because, like, so I think that, you know, if I was like an enterprise investor, I would know that like I am not like the customer, right? For that company. But in the consumer, I think is like what's Fascinating, and what's misconstrued is that you automatically think because it's a consumer company that hey, I am the customer, right? Like I am like the one, even though like if you think back to like you know if you're investing in an enterprise company, like you don't have to be the company, the the customer. You actually aren't the customer, uh, really, in order for the company to be big, right? But in consumer, you don't think that way, right? And a lot of investors don't think that way right? They think like, oh, well, I'm not the customer. So like, I don't understand
1: this. Right. Or you're not first, you're not one degree removed from the customer either, right? Like Exactly. I'm being a little facetious. And also to myself, it's like, we're all lazy in the way that we recognize our own mental patterns. So it's much easier to see if whether or not you or your neighbor or your friend or, you know, your bro or your buddy yeah. is a customer.
0: <laughs> no, exactly. It's kind of mind boggling, right? Because like, in consumer, because like consumer, it's you know it's kind of to the masses. You're you're selling to you know an individual. You kind of assume or think that you're like, well, if I'm not gonna buy this, or or you know maybe like my peers aren't gonna buy this, then you know there's maybe like no market there, right? Like just like maybe you might be thinking, especially if you're like a white male, right? You're trying to us a white male investor to invest in um, Helena, uh, the company, where it's you know dealing with um, formula. It's like, well, I wouldn't buy this, but it's like, well, if you actually take like the enterprise kind of approach. Where it's like actually I'm not the customer. Let's actually go and talk to potential customers and see, you know, how big the market this is and you know, kinda of analyze it and kind of take that process, like it actually would be much more valuable, right? It would be way more valuable because Um, and that's what I feel like sometimes gets that gets lost in consumer. When you actually invest in consumer, it's you don't need to be the customer. In some ways, it's almost better investing that you're actually not the primary customer because you can make it then a very like objective, you know, decision. There's no kind of subjectivity um, that comes out to it, and we've kind of heard that from other investors too um, down the road.
1: No, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. It's funny because I think that in in investors' defense, I speak about this broadly. It's like we're all inundated with companies and, and deals and opportunities. And I think the reality is that of course, if you took the time or the initiative to, to set out to, to see if whether or not the other, other people who fit the profile of a consumer would find this um, interesting, whether or not the market would be big enough. The reality of the day-to-day work is just that, you know, we're all time constrained, Right. And I think that goes back to the point around like, we just need to make sure that there's enough perspective around the table Where when there are enough people who represent different natural perspectives, like then they have a different inclination to go through that endeavor or uh, take on that effort to see if it makes sense, because for them, they might be the obvious consumer
0: would love to kind of dive into a bit more of how you think about different categories. How does this actually translate into specific categories that they're looking at? I know you mentioned um, formula, which is great, Um, but what are maybe some other categories as you kind of think about the funds and and how they actually fit into the, the funds thesis?
1: It's a great question, Mike. And I think that one of the biggest challenges in how we want to convey our thesis is really trying to first change this or at least try to alter this perspective that, you know, sustainability or consumer or like verticalized disciplines. The interesting thing that we see about sustainability is that it's truly cross vertical and cross-discipline, and so is consumer, or at least changes in consumers' behavior. So f- for instance, there's opportunities across food tech verticals. We've seen a lot of plant-based consumer companies or CPG companies born out of this mission to try to create a product that is better for the, for the end user with better ingredients. But does that mean that eventually we'll need a platform that makes it easier for these companies to launch those businesses? or tackle part of their supply chain or tech stack that's specific to those types of businesses. We made an investment into a company called Tomorrow Farms that's trying to create a platform to help all of these food tech businesses prepare for the, I guess, inevitable consolidation of some of these companies. So that's also something that is really interesting is that like, hey, we're seeing a lot of CPG companies try to create products, but what is the next iteration of that, right? Like how do you create infrastructure to try to prepare for that next wave of consumption? Just like, you know, sustainable fashion is becoming um, a big issue. Like do we back specific brands or do we back marketplaces or do we power the, the technology platform that is creating an entirely new material? So, you know, one of our earlier investments, which we rolled into the fund, is, is a company called Ecovative Design. It developed... Um, or develops a way to domesticate the growth of mushrooms for applications in textiles, food structure, and packaging. That's more of a platform solution because of the scale and the volume is so big, right? So I think that there are many ways to dissect it, but the way that we explore it is less so, hey, like, do we believe food tech is going to change or do we believe sustainable fashion is going to change or fashion is going to change to become more sustainable? It's like, how do we think about this problem uh, much more holistically. How do we figure out what are the platforms or infrastructures that need to exist in order for us to adapt and how all these different pieces of the consumer pie has to change to make sure that the way we're spending money and the way we're producing both products and services meet the demands of tomorrow.
0: When I think about sustainability, I also think about price. How do you think about you know price when you think about investing in some of these companies? I'd imagine if there's a company that's only really available or can only really serve like the one percent or five percent of people, that's not interesting for you because of course you want companies that have crazy amount of impact. Also, you know, really large you know markets too. How do you think about price when it comes to all this? More on like the direct to consumer side of things.
1: It's a super um, interesting and and also topical point that you bring up, um, Mike, I don't think it's a secret to say that there has been a massive influx. You know, we, we can just use food tech or Better For You products as, as an example here, but a massive influx of players. And what we're seeing is that unless the size of the pie or the market itself grows, the market is not big enough, frankly, to sustain all these players in the space. And what I mean by that is unless a product is appealing to someone, and especially if it's food from a taste level first, and then more practically from a cost level perspective, it, it would be extremely challenging for that business to be competitive with legacy players in the long run. And I think that there's a period of time where consumers will make that concession and certainly certain pockets of the consumer can afford to make that concession but as we're seeing now, you know, inflationary pressures are a very real thing that is hitting the pockets of many folks. I mean, not just in this country and in Europe, around the world. And unless your product is also better for you, but also in many ways, either the same cost or even cheaper than the alternative on the market, it's going to be very difficult for, for, for you to, to convert that consumer over a long period of time. And of course, I think, the initial pushback is that it's it's difficult and I, and I think that the reality is like you know we have to have some line of sight to how they can become price competitive if they operate under the assumption that they'll always be price prohibitive you know there's a ceiling to that growth
0: due to the changing in the economic climate in the past six months does on the more investing in, you know, consumer brands and consumer products, is the bar now much higher for you, considering, you know, that people are gonna be thinking twice about spending on premium products?
1: We we've always tend to, to lean away from picking specific consumer brands and products anyways. So I don't think it's necessarily informed or biased from that perspective. Um, and it largely just goes back to to the question around how can you capture and leverage this opportunity that is powered by consumers, but at scale, you know, unless there are uh, asymmetric market forces or market momentums, g- generally, we have tended to stay away from, you know, single name, like it's like almost like single name stocks, if you will. But that's not always been the case. I-, I think I mentioned one of my companies earlier is, you know, we backed more of like a peer play at least on the surface, consumer company called Ever Eden. They're delivering clean skincare for mothers, infants, and babies. But they're they're one of the biggest players in China by far. So our part of our rationale in, in making a leap and picking a single name company in that space is because the market was so enormous and there was um sort of unequal opportunity for that company to be very competitive in that space. But it's a different tangent. To go back to your question around how does the market, current market environment change that. I think it would be impossible to ignore that for consumer brands that are price point that are priced at a price point that is higher than most can afford or are considered, you know, discretionary spending, are going to find it to be a pretty challenging time. But I think the reality goes back to an underlying question of why that consumer product should or should not exist in the first place. And if the answer to that question is that hey, this is a consumer product that is a need to have, Or at least uh, need to have amongst a big enough group of people, then the short or medium term market environment shouldn't change your overall business mission or mandate. Having said that, you know, you still need to find a way to keep the lights on. You still need to make sure that your business is running to get to the next, who knows when that is, next part of the cycle where you can fundraise again. If your product is still fundamentally Serving big enough portion of the consumer market and it's necessary enough for folks, then it's about kind of like you know, holding down the fort to ensure that you have enough of a runway to continue to produce and innovate on your product so that ultimately you can emerge on the other side um, because the underlying need shouldn't change.
0: yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense because I mean, obviously too, you know, as an investor, you one of the things that you build that you build into, you know, your models and everything is obviously when you do have a down cycle. And so that shouldn't obviously change, you know, maybe where the consumer's heart is as well. And also, as you say, you need to keep the lights on. But, you know, if you do have sales, if you have resonated with the consumer, then like you're maybe like the early stages of building a brand and that's really, really critical.
1: Totally. Again, I think the narrative is changing a little bit, but people think about innovation and sustainability or solutions and climate tech as, Something to focus on when other things are going well, if you will, right? And I think that now this is something that's come up again in conversation. Like, you know, a lot of financial literature, or they're like, or should we even be looking at ESG or should we be looking at sustainable solutions when we have much more pressing financial needs? It's funny because the corollary to that thought is that, you know, just take a black swan conflict like the Ukraine-Russia war. I think, if anything, we have realized that energy dependency is extremely dangerous. And in many ways, we've also recognized that relying on, you know, uh, wheat import is also extremely dangerous, or at least many countries are are witnessing that um, the hard way right now. So I think it goes without saying that, sure, there are other pressing needs, but the urgency of us needing to invest in solutions now that will provide a much more sustainable from not only the environmental or social aspect, but also from an economic standpoint, like making those investments are still very much necessary. And I think, you know, many folks who are driving gas, you know, guzzling cars and seeing uh, oil prices and gas prices go through the roof are are wishing that they had electric vehicles or they had uh, other electric modes of transportation, like an electric bike that can help get them the same two radius, which is the average distance that people actually drive for. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, I I think there's no doubt that it's, it's, you know, we have to reassess and there'll be challenging times, but I think we still need to keep in mind that the whole point of why we're here and why we invest in these decade defining solutions is we want to make sure that we're, we're preparing ourselves for the next decade.
0: Yeah. That also I think it speaks to a little bit um, about how you think in terms of, you know, very, very long term and the opportunities now are, you know, ones that will, you know, have impact in the coming decades. With all this being said, and, you know, now we've know um, quite a bit. I feel like we made some really good ground in terms of, you know, what you invest in and your thesis. What are some of the qualities or what do you look for in founders?
1: It's a really great question. If I were to be completely honest, Mike is is constantly evolving. I actually spent quite a bit of time of thinking and and, and talking through with one of my mentors, um, Jonathan Mildenhall. He asked me about what was consistent across all my founders. And I realized that we look for underdogs, underdogs with an unshakable fighting spirit that may be packaged in different profiles, gender, background, but it's this underlying grit and perseverance. I think that that is the underlying thing that is truly a non-negotiable. It's quite simple. Like the fund's mission is, is to seek out these undervalued opportunities, be it across individuals, i.e. the founders, or across industries, i.e. sectors that are cross-vertical to deliver disproportionate returns. And yeah, I mean, I think if these times reveal anything is is the thing to have, right?
0: <laughs> so what's one piece of advice that you would give to emerging managers or people that are looking to raise a fund? Well
1: will echo my earlier sentiment around finding the folks you look up to, values who you align with to learn and grow with and anchor that to yourself as one of your North Stars. I think the other thing I've always really fundamentally believed in is and this sounds silly it's actually something that my mom told me a long time ago but no one can make you feel inferior without your consent and be it starting a company starting a fund or working at a company that's you know still has it's still trying to figure out its way or a fund you know, you feel a lot of the highs and a lot of the lows. And I think that there's, it's really important to recognize that you need to, to also, I don't want to say be easy on yourself, but to have that perspective that sometimes we're, we're, we're our own harshest critics. So just chin up <laughs> and recognizing that you can't do this alone, even if you are in many ways, a one man or one woman shop. If I can hone any point home, it would be around this that like, it's super important to have a close knit network of supporters and believers. I recall one time last spring uh, when I was going through all these questions in my head, and Bijan of Spark he called me on a weekend to help me walk through my thought process, and I'll never forget it. He he told me that he saw something you know similar to what he sees in his founders, and he didn't want to be out of line, which. Obviously it's so comical because how could he be? I was taking any advice <laughs> I could get from him. He he was pretty blunt and he's like, honestly, I think you should start your own firm. It's so funny because I am so thankful and appreciative. And I truly, genuinely believe that if it's not for surrounding yourself with people who share your values, but who also give you the confidence for you to build on your values, it makes the world of a difference. And there's just so much you cannot control or calculate for. But the one thing you can do is choose who you surround yourself with.
0: Definitely. Definitely. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: There's this book called Hidden Valley Road by Robert Kolker. I believe that's his name. I read during the pandemic and I loved. It's actually a fiction or It's technically nonfiction, but it reads like fiction. It's super fascinating, but it chronicles a family. And I think the the takeaway from this book is that you don't have to be a product of your circumstance. And I don't know if that's something that inspired me personally or professionally, but maybe both. And then another book that I really liked, and I'm sure a lot of folks have read this, is is Think Again by Adam Grant. That's probably more relevant in a professional setting. The, The synopsis is that he says, he highlights how we all think about intelligence I forgot, or aptitude as as being like the ability to, to learn or your mark on logic, but it's actually the ability to learn and think again. And I think that in not only in our environment, but also in our field, that's probably arguably the most uh, useful piece of advice anyone could get. And then also Grit by Angela Duckworth, not to throw in another book in there, but just, you know, to hone in the point around grit and founders.
0: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you mentioning these. I don't think, besides grit, I don't think we've actually had the other two, um, Hidden Valley Road or Think Again, being featured on our book list. So we're really excited to add those to our page. I appreciate you explaining the reasons why that they has had such a great impact. Sita, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mike.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Sita. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.